0: contact, making, contact. Making, making making contact I'm Monica Lopez this week on making contact September 11th 2021 marks the 20th anniversary of the 9/11 attacks on the United States In today's program we turn our attention not to the tragedy of 9/11 itself but to 9/11 as an inflection point in US culture and policy in two areas surveillance and homeland security and the government and public regard of the use of torture in the War on Terror. On this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the United States, Making Contact is speaking with leading thinkers and asking what 9-11's legacy has been in these areas. But first, we go to Making Contact producer Salima Hamarani. Using the backdrop of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Department of Homeland Security began funding huge surveillance networks all over the country. They shared information between local and federal intelligence agencies, and they supposedly tracked information to prevent the next big attack on American soil. Or did they? Salima Ahamurani brings us this story from Maine.
1: A lot of the surveillance infrastructure created after 9-11 remains part of everyday life in the United States. But activists might have a chance to dismantle at least one part of it. Fusion centers.
2: The Maine Fusion Center, as it's called, under scrutiny once again. Law enforcement leaders, though, argue that the program is critical for information sharing between departments, but critics say that their work is often an invasion of privacy.
1: The state of Maine is the current battleground where a bill introduced by Charlotte Warren seeks to defund its Fusion Center.
2: The Maine Information and Analysis Center was set up as part of a network of at least 78 fusion centers across the country in the wake of 9-11 as part of the government buildup in homeland security, domestic surveillance, international surveillance, as a way to share information between federal law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, and local police.
1: That's Matthew Gariglia, a policy analyst at the Electronic Frontier Foundation.
3: You know, after 9-11 there was a big political pressure to do something, right? And they added all new layers of institutional structure for security up and down the administrative hierarchy of the American state.
1: And that's Brendan McQuaid, author of a book on fusion centers and assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine.
3: The DHS fusion centers were created for counterterrorism after 9-11, but they quickly expanded to a nebulous all-crimes, all-hazards, all-threats mission.
1: While the fusion center intelligence hubs have existed for 20 years, it's been difficult to know exactly what they've been doing in that time, even though journalists and policymakers have been asking questions. Here's Matthew.
2: Part of the problem with fusion centers, as in the problem with law enforcement and intelligence agencies at large, is that they are incredibly opaque. And when When it's hard to understand what they're doing, it also means that they become hard to regulate.
1: But we now have some idea of what fusion centers do because of new information that's come to light.
2: And so what really happened with the main fusion center is a series of leaks, the blue leaks, a hack of, from what I understand it, a web hosting service that a lot of specifically law enforcement agencies use and which were leaked to the public and dispersed through different media outlets who reported on some of the findings inside these documents.
1: And Brendan, intelligence gathering is kind of a vague term. What do we learn from BlueLeaks about the kind of data fusion centers actually aggregate?
3: Well, basically they aggregate everything and anything. They develop their own databases, but really what they do is remotely access other people's databases. So the first thing they want is all the government data. So I'm not just talking about the criminal legal system, although they do have access to that. But they want the records of the DMV. They want records from police departments about calls for service. Uh, They'll take demographic data from the census.
1: Fusion centers also aggregate information from social media via software and also through old-fashioned eavesdropping.
3: The actual human analysts will go through social media and monitor it for information.
1: And they have access to mountains of digital information flowing through cities.
3: So for example, the Crime Prevention Information Center, I believe it's called the CPIC, which is the Metro Chicago Fusion Center. Twenty-some thousand security cameras all over the city of Chicago feed into that Fusion Center other fusion centers have automated license plate readers where the data goes directly to them. So they take all this data and they try to find the signal from the noise and find the patterns.
1: Which DSA says they use to identify possible terrorist attacks like 9-11.
3: What happens in practice is something different. There really isn't that much terrorism. You know, there's not much terrorism. There's not much legitimate political violence for police investigators to look into. So what do they do in the absence of terrorism? You give police lots of new technology and resources and they're gonna put it to work doing the work that police do.
1: Um, Brendan, what does that actually mean? Who's who's being targeted by fusion center spying? since there's not actually a real terrorist threat in the United States?
3: The vast majority of fusion center surveillance is what they call situational awareness monitoring. So it's really at a distance, and it's mostly gathering information from social media. So the police will point to this and say, we're not doing surveillance. We're just letting people know that there's going to be this big disruptive protest. and you have to redirect the traffic around it. That's the majority of fusion center surveillance. But then we have a series of other examples where fusion centers are mixed up in like much more traditional type political policing. So cases with informants and agent provocateurs and all that intrigue and cloak and dagger stuff.
1: In Maine, the fusion center seems particularly focused on the Black Lives Matter protests that erupted after the murder of George Floyd. Here's Matthew.
2: And specifically, they were funneling information to police that, for instance, stacks of bricks were being strategically placed, or that there were larger grand schemes for destruction already underway.
3: And this was a right-wing conspiracy theory. So, a journalist here, Nathan Bernard with the Mainer, he dug into it. So, he found out that there was an FBI document attached to all these main fusion center reports, an FBI document that supported, you know, that had further information about this claim about pre staged bricks. The claim gets traced to uh, an unconfirmed social media post from a pro Trump biker who is associated with the group a super happy, fun America formerly resist Marxism that had organized straight pride parades in Boston and was basically a point of entry to the hardcore white supremacist movement, hardcore fascist right. And this got recycled by you know the Maine Fusion Center and blasted out to every cop in Maine, telling them, be careful, the anarchists are going to hurl bricks at you at the racial justice protests.
1: The Blue Leaks revealed that fusion centers were not very focused on, quote, terrorism threats from outside, but they were very preoccupied with internal threats from the left and with even more routine issues that plague most major cities.
3: And when you think about all the ridiculous police abuse, all all the viral clips we saw of very aggressive police behavior, the background of this is this constant hum, this constant churn, of police documents coming out from fusion centers and other fusion center like intelligence hubs hyping up the threat of black lives matter of antifa of anarchist extremists of eco-terrorists and underneath that is even the even more routine drug users homeless untreated mental illness these are all the enemies of order so what do fusion centers do they supercharge the war on drugs and the war on crime and the, you know, with high-tech surveillance. And they're like the connective tissue between the different pieces of the carceral state.
1: The Blue Leaks also highlighted the extremely close collaboration between the Department of Homeland Security and private money, which begins to muddy who the fusion centers target and why.
3: Aileen Brown at The Intercept has an excellent report about some fusion centers in the Midwest that were doing these like war game exercises about environmental eco-terrorism at the behest of energy companies. And say what you will about property destruction, but there's a strong argument to be made that so-called eco-terrorists shouldn't be considered political extremists. That debate is not happening. And we've built this huge apparatus to criminalize and go after people who are like militantly committed to the environment. And we've done that in partnership with the very capital interests that have a vested interest in burning every last drop of fossil fuels on this planet. This is what's happening with the Enbridge Line 3 right now in Minnesota. The Fusion Center is all over those protests. Same thing with The Mountain Valley Pipeline, another pipeline struggle where the Fusion Center is aggressively involved in working with the private sector to crush protests.
1: After Blue Leaks, pressure began to mount on the main Fusion Center and its problematic use of surveillance.
2: Maine Representative Charlotte Warren introduced an act to end the Maine Information Analysis Center program, which would defund the not very considerable but moderate amount of resources headed toward funding this fusion center and i believe it's 12 employees and move it elsewhere where it might do more good and encourage more public safety the bill much to everybody's uh, chagrin passed the house and is still in process from what i understand
1: fusion centers have become a target for the defund movement which grew out of the george floyd protests and they may seem like a strange target for an organizing strategy focused on local police.
2: When we talk about policing and surveillance being out of control, we are also talking about fusion centers. We're talking about the Department of Homeland Security's ability to surveillance Americans. We're talking about local police and all of the federal grants they get to buy surveillance equipment. So it really is a revolving door and the boundaries between defunding local police and leaving maybe federal grants alone or or federal law enforcement alone. Those boundaries are definitely disappearing if they ever even existed.
1: The bill in Maine could set a precedent for what happens to fusion centers across the country and other states are watching.
3: So after we did our bill in Maine, we've been contacted by activists and politicians in Massachusetts in Wisconsin, in Texas, in Illinois, and whether or not they get a campaign together is kind of besides the point because there will be future opportunities. There'll be future political opportunities that put the fusion center on the chopping block that make it a political target. So I look forward to these future opportunities to to close the main information and analysis center, to close other fusion centers, to roll back mass surveillance and mass criminalization.
1: Matthew thinks that the fight against fusion centers is building off of a series of other surveillance fights in various cities as people begin to push back against the ever-increasing presence of government and big business spying into their lives since 9-11.
2: I think we've seen this in a lot of other cities and states with a lot of other technologies as well. I mean, just look at the movement that has been sweeping the country of states and cities banning face recognition or banning the use of predictive policing. I think fusion centers are definitely going to be one of those next moves for civil liberties advocates, for racial justice advocates, for people who are interested in privacy. And already there are conversations about the, for instance, the Minneapolis Fusion Center, which I'm sure did its fair share of shuffling information from federal government to local police in regards to the protests that happened in Twin Cities. And so I think absolutely we're going to see a a growing movement uh, to defund fusion centers because I think people are coming around to the knowledge that they might not be even that useful.
1: You were just listening to Matthew Gariglia from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Brendan McQuaid from the University of Southern Maine. For more information about fusion centers and the fight to end them, visit our website. I'm Salima Hamarani, reporting from Oakland.
0: Dr. Lisa Hajar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research focuses primarily on the U.S. war on terror, particularly around the issues of torture, targeted killing, and Guantanamo. Her forthcoming book is titled, The War in Court, The Inside Story of the Fight Against Torture in the War on Terror. To date, she's traveled to Guantanamo 14 times in her research on military commissions. Dr. Hajar spoke with me about the rise and fall of the post-9-11 torture program.
4: One of the very first decisions in the very um, immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, uh, President George W. Bush decided to make the CIA the tip of the spear, you know, for waging this war on terror and authorized the CIA to engage in operations that came to be known as rendition, detention and interrogation. So the CIA was presumably hunting for high level terror suspects whom they would keep For themselves, for their own interrogation purposes, which was separate from military um, interrogation and detention operations, first in Afghanistan, and then on January 11, 2002, when Guantanamo became the primary facility for long-term interrogation and detention. I mean, of course, the CIA has a very long, uh, robust history of torture, as well as of lying and deceptiveness. And so that was one of the reasons why the CIA was so appealing as the kind of front agency, also because everything they do is completely classified. When the CIA captured its own first so-called high-value detainee, um, which the government uses the acronym HVD, who is a man whose nom de guerre is Abu Zubaydah, he was captured in Pakistan in March of 2002 and sort of spirited off to one of a succession of black sites or secret prisons. And you know, the people who were authorized by the CIA to run their interrogation operations actually believed that the only way to get these high-value detainees, starting with Abu Zubaydah, to talk, was to completely um, attack their psyches, to produce in them a condition that was called you know, debility, disorientation, and dread. And so... These, you know, contractors and other agents who were involved in the Black site operations at the very start, you know, they sort of believed their own propaganda, that
0: we were unable to use regular interrogation tactics against them. According to Professor Hajar, this desire to use coercion and violence was coupled with an anxiety that what people were going to be doing to detainees at Black sites could put them in hot water. And so by the summer of 2002, you know these radical right-wing
4: lawyers who were in the inner circle around Vice President uh, Dick Cheney, including John Yoo, who was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. John Yoo uh, wrote a memo which basically reinterpreted the laws pertaining to interrogation and detention in order to allow CIA agents to engage in torture and not fear future consequences. So it was essentially the way in which the government was seeking to quote unquote, legalize torture. And that um, legal authorization was really foundational to the development of the torture program. It was written specifically for the CIA, which is a civilian agency and therefore not subject to the laws of war, particularly the Geneva Conventions. Um, But it was passed by the White House to the Pentagon and civilians in the highest echelons of the Pentagon then basically interpreted that green light for torture to also apply to military interrogations at Guantanamo and elsewhere. on, we're talking about like November and December of 2001, the the word getting out to officers and soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan was these people are not, you know, prisoners of war. The laws of war don't apply. Take the gloves off, you know, get the information you can. So many soldiers were engaging in brutality um, without any kind of legal cover. But it was really sort of once the CIA gets this uh, governmental justification or, or legal cover, what people have referred to as the golden shield, that le- the legal memos shielding them from consequences for what they were doing, um, it then spreads to the military and becomes part of military policy as well um, in the latter part of 2002 and then early into 2003. You know, right after President Bush issued his military order um, in November of 2001, decreeing that our enemies were unlawful enemy combatants, and that they could be held in comunicado and subjected to trial by military commissions, one of the first people, you know, for whom this was like, like an alarming development was Michael Ratner, who was the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And he and his colleagues you know, joined together with um, two death penalty lawyers, Joe Margulis uh, and uh, Clive Stafford Smith. They challenged the government's right to simply capture people and hold them without any access to lawyers, without any... Assessment of who they actually were or whether or not they were legitimately detained. And so that was the very first court case. It was named Rasul v. Bush. And so Um, What happened was the case lost in the lower court, lost on appeal, but then to the shock and surprise of the Bush administration, the CCR lawyers and their allies beat the Bush administration when the Supreme Court ruled in Rasul v. Bush that the government cannot
0: hold people indefinitely incommunicado. Rasul v. Bush was one critical event in 2004 that moved the post-9-11 torture program closer to its end. There were two other events, and and you know the one that perhaps
4: is most well known to the more general public, at least of a certain age, was the Abu Ghraib scandal. After the United States invaded Iraq uh, in in March of two thousand three, you know, soldiers who were detaining people in Iraq had also been you know ordered to take the gloves off and and you know get intelligence about whoever was attacking U.S. and allied forces, and so there was a also horrific violence um, in U.S.-controlled prisons in Iraq, including the Abu Ghraib prison. And so some of these soldiers who were working as military police took photos of themselves abusing detainees in absolutely horrifying ways. Some soldiers exchanged these photos among themselves. You know, ultimately CBS ended up publishing the Abu Ghraib photos on April 28th, 2004. Those Abu Ghraib photos created an absolute global scandal. So that was the first, that was a pivotal event, the beginning of the end of torture. It was finally Congress roused itself from its sleepy slumber to start asking questions about what was actually going on in detention facilities, you know, because everything was so classified and secret. This demand for, by Congress for more information led to the Bush administration releasing some legal memos and others being leaked to the media, including the infamous August 1, 2002 memo that John Yu had written. Uh, for the CIA. So while the upper-grade photos were a global Shocker because of the, you know, a picture says a thousand words. For lawyers, the legal memos and the policy directives that became public as a result of the pressure caused by the Abu Ghraib scandal really angered and, in some ways, galvanized lawyers. And then several weeks later, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Rasul v. Bush, basically opening Guantanamo to lawyers. And so it was that confluence of events that, in Inspired hundreds of lawyers, like up to 600 lawyers and over 100 law firms over time, to sign up and volunteer to be habeas counsel for people detained at Guantanamo. What we could say is if, if the Abu Ghraib scandal and Rasul v. Bush were the beginning of the end, the end of an active torture program occurs as a result of another set of events. You know, when the Bush administration decides to start prosecuting some Guantanamo detainees in these newly um, created military commission uh, at Guantanamo. One of the first people who was charged was a guy named Salim Hamdan. You know, he was not some terrorist mastermind. He'd been basically, you know, a driver for Osama bin Laden. But he was one of the first people to be prosecuted. And And one thing that really shocked the hell out of the Bush administration and the Pentagon was the fact that military lawyers, JAGs, Judge Advocate Generals, the first ones who were assigned to defend people in the military commissions, basically put their legal ethics and their professional duties as lawyers above the orders to just, you know, plea bargain their clients. And so, you know, The first five defense lawyers all started fighting the Pentagon over, you know, not just the way in which um, the people they were assigned to represent had been treated, but also the kind of ridiculous
0: legal parameters for the military commission. One of those lawyers was Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. Hajar says he teamed up with a Georgetown law professor and attorneys from the law firm of Perkins Coey to sue Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld over the unconstitutionality of the military commissions.
4: And so that case was called Hamdan v. Rumsfeld. And again, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld loses in the lower court, loses on appeal. And then in June of 2006, in another, and what I would consider the most significant defeat for the Bush administration, and really what what forces an end to the active torture program was the Supreme Court's decision that not only were the military commissions that George Bush had created by presidential fiat with his November 2001 military order was that unconstitutional and therefore they wiped out the military commissions, but the more significant finding the Bush administration had hoped that they could disregard the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, because they were fighting non-state groups, and therefore they didn't have to abide by the laws of war. Well, the Supreme Court in Hamdan v. Rumsfeld basically said Common Article Three of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which is also regarded as the humanitarian baseline, applies to all people in U.S. custody overseas— And then the Supreme Court also reminded the government that violations of the Geneva Conventions are war crimes. For all intents and purposes, torture itself was kind of dry docked as a result of and after the Hamdan decision. And then when Barack Obama was elected president, um, one of his first acts in office was to definitively take the CIA out of the interrogation and detention business and... Categorically, you know, bring an end to the legality or the use of torture. There has not yet been a a reckoning with our past. You know, now that we are approaching the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks themselves, that court case in the Guantanamo military commissions, which started under Bush, fell apart immediately, and then restarted under Obama, is continuing on. And it's not even at the trial phase, it's at the pretrial phase, because the US government decided to torture people, and now it wants to prosecute people it tortured. And those two facts are irreconcilable. And so, if you think about the 9 11 case as the one and only way in which the, all the, you know, 2,976 people who were direct casualties of the 9-11 attacks, if this case were to be the means of providing them justice, there has been no justice for them because the government tortured people, including those people it wants to prosecute for the 9-11 attacks.
0: Lisa Hajar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her forthcoming book is titled The War in Court, the inside story of the fight against torture in the war on terror. The Making Contact team is Sonia Green, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamurani, Sabine Blazon, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.